What do you know is true because you've experienced it for yourself? What do you know is true because you've experienced it directly, firsthand, for yourself? This question is one way of beginning to reflect on the first source of Unitarian Universalism, direct experience. Direct experience of that transcending mystery and wonder affirmed in all cultures, which moves us to a renewal of the spirit and an openness to the forces which create and uphold life. The turn of the 20th century American philosopher and psychologist William James in his book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, approaches this idea from a related angle. He says that established religious communities, religious communities already in existence, are based for the most part on secondhand tradition. But the founders of these religious traditions owed their power originally to the fact of their direct personal communion with the divine. So why do we settle for someone else's second-hand experience when we can ground our beliefs and our practices in our own direct experience? James is not only lamenting religious communities that ground authority in secondhand tradition, but calling us to cultivate firsthand religious experience. The Unitarian Universalist decision to foreground direct experience as the first of the six sources is significant when viewed through the lens of history. Many religious traditions, especially in the West, have historically located the source of religious authority in tradition. What people in the past allegedly did and believed, not always what they did do and believe, but what they allegedly did and believed, and in hierarchy. What religious leaders say to do and believe, not necessarily what they do and believe, but what they say to do and believe. But as the Yale historian um, Yaroslav Pelikan warned in his 83 Jefferson lecture, We must be wary of instances when tradition, which he defines as the living faith of the dead, devolves into traditionalism, which he defines as the dead faith of the living. From this perspective, tradition is a life-giving source of inspiration for those of us alive today, whereas traditionalism is, at its worst, Um, a zombie-like obedience um, to the past and a repression of creativity. But emphasizing direct experience as the first source is a strong protection against traditionalism. If a tradition rings hollow to you as dead faith, the first source invites you to seek a meaningful experience elsewhere, perhaps from one of the other five sources of Unitarian Universalism. And for many centuries, the predecessors of contemporary Unitarian Universalism have challenged religious traditionalism by refusing to deny the veracity of their direct experience. They've said again and again, this is, I know this to be true because I've experienced it directly for myself, and it contradicts what you're telling me is the right way. In the mid-16th century, Michael Servetus, uh, 
rejected the doctrine of the Trinity in the wake of his direct experience of studying the Bible for himself, not the second-hand testimony of what those priests told him from the pulpit was true, so don't just believe it because I said it. Um, he discovered something different. He was stunned to discover that the New Testament does not require a belief in the Trinity. He's like, where, where is that? He couldn't find it. And he was burned at the stake for his heresy. In response to this wrongful death, Sebastian Castellio, who didn't necessarily agree with Servetus, um, Castellio was a Christian preacher, he courageously spoke up nevertheless about this wrongful execution, saying, to burn a man is not to defend a doctrine. It is only to burn a man. This point should seem obvious today in our more supposedly enlightened times, but the shooting we talked about earlier um, at the Sick Gurdwara in um, Wisconsin is an all-too-frightening case of history repeating itself. Echoing Castillo's sentiments from more than 500 years ago, some of you may have seen the quote circulating this past week on Facebook, that I was going to post something that would tell you the difference between Hindus, Sikhs, and Muslims, but I realized that you don't need to know anything about somebody's religion to know that you shouldn't shoot them. Now, this sarcastic response is at its core a plea to recognize the common humanity that is just below our surface diversity. It's a call for all people to recognize at a fundamental level the inherent worth and dignity of every human being. Now, moving from Servetus' 16th century martyrdom, Unitarian Universalists do have martyrs. Don't let people tell you otherwise. Um, uh, people that are not, and martyrs are not people who are looking to die. Martyrs are people that are willing to stand up for what they believe. And if that includes, you know, stand, you know standing on the side of love, that it can get you killed. These aren't people looking to get killed, but it's people who believe so strongly and passionately in their, their cause. But moving from the 16th century to the 18th century, Joseph Priestley, some of you know we're in the Joseph Priestley district, Joseph Priestley was another brilliant Unitarian Universalist forebear persecuted for his beliefs. His direct scientific experience led to the discovery of oxygen. And his direct religious experience led him to reject Orthodox tradition and belief. Ralph Waldo Emerson similarly courted controversy in his landmark 19th century address to the graduating class of Harvard Divinity School. He commissioned that group of newly minted ministers not to base their preaching on tradition and external authority, but on their direct experience. Not what you've learned in lectures. Preach about what you know is true because you've experienced it directly for yourself. He challenged them to cast behind you all conformity and acquaint humanity at first hand with deity. Likewise, from Copernicus to Darwin to today, Unitarian Universalists and their predecessors have been among the first to adapt religion to the teachings of science, which is based on the direct experience of empirical, observable, and repeatable evidence. So our, our individual subjective experience is important, but so is paying attention to those things that are objective and repeatable that we can say, this didn't just happen once. I, I can show you this is true. Just, you know, come over to my laboratory. It's in the basement. No. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, they knew this scientific evidence is truth because they could witness it firsthand for themselves. 
Now, there are many other significant and moving stories to share from Unitarian Universalist history, and I have to take a week-long, nine-to-five-each-day um, Unitarian Universalist polity and history course in January, so you're probably going to be hearing a lot more from me about these uh, historical facts and stories, but I'd like to share with you right now a story of what I know to be true because I've experienced it firsthand for myself. During my junior year in college, I had the opportunity to participate in a six-week travel study to Egypt, Jordan, Israel, and Italy. And I quickly learned that studying Islam from a textbook in South Carolina is quite different than the full-color reality, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the touches of the Muslim world itself. I was accustomed to church bells ringing on Sunday morning. But in Egypt, I was woken each morning by the muezzin's call to prayer, echoing throughout the streets um, of Cairo at dawn were these words, God is great. I bear witness that there is none worthy of worship except God. Now, this is all in Arabic, of course, but um, bear with me with the English. I bear witness that Muhammad is the messenger of God. Come to prayer. Come to success. Prayer is better than sleep. So if it's not, maybe you need to find a meditation or a prayer practice that can convince you of that. That may be your challenge. God is great. There is none worthy of worship except God. And now aided by the electronic amplification systems of our modern age, it was a loud sunrise call to prayer every morning. Uh, in the Middle East, I found myself part of a religious minority for the first time. And suddenly I realized more viscerally than I ever had before how ignorantly I must have treated religious minorities in the past. The times I must have failed to explain terms or rituals that were obvious to me as an insider, uh, made unintentionally offensive comments, or failed to ask my friends if I could learn more about their religious traditions or experiences. Stepping into the Muslim world in Egypt and Jordan, into the Jewish world in Israel, into uh, the Roman Catholic world in Italy, gave me a fully embodied, first-hand immersion in many diverse religious experiences. That's transformative direct experience. That's the first source in action. Now, there are other stories I could share with you, um, like the time I was reprimanded for wearing shoes in the sanctuary of a Hare Krishna temple in Dallas, Texas. Now, I really just went for the vegetarian food, but I, uh, it's really delicious. But, or when I was accosted at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem because I had long hair at the time, and the Orthodox rabbi thought I was a woman trying to pray on the men's side. This is true. I have pictures. Uh, the... The larger point is how transformative direct experience can be. I hope some of you were able to get in touch with some of your own direct experiences in the meditation time earlier. Now, feminism, for example, has been defined as the paradigm shift from seeing male experience as normative to taking women's experience as an equally valid criterion of authority. And seeing women in power, from Supreme Court justices to senators to female pastors and CEOs, that's transformative direct experience. That's the first source in action. My wife and I were hiking in Switzerland a few years ago on vacation, and we passed a sign on the trail marking where a nearby glacier had ended in 1979. We kept walking and eventually passed a sign marking where the glacier had ended in 1991 and then in 2002. Finally, we came to the glacier itself. 
Now, I've seen deeply troubling footage, as I'm sure many of you have as well, of polar ice caps melting. But seeing that glacier's recession for myself was a renewed personal call for me to redouble my efforts of reversing climate change, or at least arresting it. That's transformative direct experience. That's the first source in action. Now, I've lost count of the number of acquaintances, friends, and family members who finally evolved in their position on same-sex marriage when a son or daughter, a father or mother, aunt or uncle, brother, sister, best friend, favorite teacher or coach came out of the closet. That's transformative direct experience. That's the first source in action. And some of you may have seen the moving picture from a while back of President Obama leaning down so that a little African-American boy could, had requested to, can I, he was in the Oval Office and said, can I touch and see if your hair feels like mine? That's transformative, direct experience. That's the first source in action. Afterwards, that little boy said, I either want to be the President of the United States or a fighter pilot. So... Now, moving to direct experience in the religious realm, as much as I enjoy reading about Buddhism, for example, I feel equally drawn to sit zazen and test the truth of the Buddhist teaching in my own direct experience, the crucible of my own first-hand experience. As much as I enjoy reading Carl Jung's journals, I feel equally drawn to record my own dreams and to test his theories against my own direct experience. The first source rightly reminds us that whenever it is possible and prudent to do so, each individual should test the truth of any teaching, asking, can I confirm this truth claim for myself? Doing so can be transformative, either because you confirm that it is true or you realize that it's not. Accordingly, one of the many aspects of Unitarian Universalism that speaks to me most strongly is that first source of direct experience. As we heard earlier, William James lamented that far too many congregations, when once established, live at second hand upon tradition. But the founders of every religious tradition owed their power originally to the fact of their first hand experience with the divine. So I encourage you to not be content with secondhand religious experience. Cherish, cultivate direct experience. Reflect, journal, make art, make music about those times when you've had direct experiences. Savor them, reflect on them. And judge truth based not just on secondhand testimony of myself or any other religious leader, but based in the crucible of your direct experience. Now, having spent some time discussing the first source of direct experience in theory and in the history of Unitarian Universalism and in my own life, I'd be remiss if I did not invite you to experiment this morning briefly with the first source for yourself. I'm going to invite you to do so through a brief guided meditation. But please only enter into this experience to the extent that feels right for you. This meditation is adapted from a book called The Philokalia which translated from the Greek means the love of the beautiful. It's an anthology of writings from monks in what's known as the Hesychus tradition, which means rest, quiet, or silence. I invite you to test in your direct experience if the meditation through which I'm going to guide you results in the same sort of inner stillness, 
that these ancient monks claimed it did for them. The following quote adapted from the Philokalia will give you a preview of the meditation structure through which I'll lead you momentarily. So long as meditation remains in the head, in the intellect, it is incomplete and imperfect. It is necessary to descend from the head to the heart, to find the place of the heart, to bring the mind down into the heart, to unite the mind with the heart. Then meditation will become not only mindfulness, but heartfulness. The prayer not of one faculty only, but of the whole human being, soul, spirit, and body. The prayer not only of our intelligence, of our natural reason, but of the spirit with its special power of direct contact with God or with the whole of reality. Before we begin, if you're comfortable doing so, I invite you to sit up straight with your feet flat on the floor. If you're comfortable, close your eyes and take a deep breath in through your nose and out through your mouth. Allow your hands to rest gently in your lap. Try to imagine a line that extends directly back behind your eyes. Then imagine a line that runs between your ears. Picture where those two lines meet, directly behind your eyes and between your ears. Gently focus your attention on that space. Some wisdom teachers call this space the sixth chakra or the third eye chakra. If that imagery is helpful for you, I invite you to picture your third eye opening as you focus on that space. If that imagery is not helpful, simply focus your attention gently on that space behind your eyes and between your ears. Now imagine that you are slowly walking down a long spiral staircase, slowly, step by step. This long spiral staircase begins in your mind, in that space directly behind your eyes and between your ears, and winds slowly down to your heart. Imagine yourself beginning to slowly descend this staircase. With each step, let go of your worries and thoughts. Give yourself permission to sink for a few moments into the hidden chamber of your heart. In a few moments, I'll ring a bell and we'll enter into a time of silence. After about two minutes, you'll hear another bell signaling the end of the meditation. For now, take your time walking down that spiral staircase. Allow your mind to descend into your heart. Silently rest in this place where mindfulness meets heartfulness.